The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So again, a big welcome to everybody here in the room and online, and especially anybody who's here for the first time. For those who haven't been part, we've been looking at refuge this summer in July, and then starting recently in August, uh, what is the path of practice? And last week I talked about persistence. And uh, I don't remember if I mentioned this last week, but um, there are many, have been evidently, at least within the sort of Buddhist mythology, many Buddhas, many awakened ones who taught. And, uh, and the, each one has their own sort of personality and teaching style and and the Buddha, our Buddha, you know, the person who lived 2,500 years ago, his sort of superpower personality attribute that really helped was his ability to persist. So you, you sense that when you look at these teachings that have come down over the centuries, there's a lot about effort, about wise effort, and it's so easy for our effort to be off, like too much, too tight, or too complacent, thinking, oh, we're just gonna let everything be. Well, if we let everything be, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I don't know about your habit energies, but a lot of our habit energies are not the kind of things that we wanna keep doing over and over again. So there really is a place for training or for persisting this place of applying our mind to the problem at hand. But it's a real art and science to how we apply ourselves, how we make effort. And often we'll use the word persistence instead of effort. Because there's something we want to persist at. So for the next week, because I'm going to continue talking about the path of practice, the path of awakening that the Buddhist instructions or the Buddhist teachings lay out. And so, under this general umbrella of, hey, there's something to do with our human life, we need to persist. The next obvious question is, well, persist at what? So the first thing that we need to persist at, and there, I'm just gonna go through over the next number of weeks, different spiritual skills that we can persist at and until they become something this hard is pretty comfortable and competent at. And one of the skills we all need, no matter our personality types, no matter our age, no matter our culture, are just a basic skill that humans need to be wise and just not even wise in a spiritual sense, although that for sure, but even wise in just a pragmatic sense of navigating life, raising kids or doing whatever we do in life. And that is this capacity to seclude the mind from the diversity of experience, to do one thing at a time. Now that doesn't mean that's how we should go through life, only doing one thing at a time. No, no, I'm doing this now. I don't care if the building's burning down. <laughs> I'm chopping my carrots. Don't interrupt me. Right? Because people can be that way, you know, where they, 
they go through life with blinders and they might be successful as artists, as business people, as whatever, but it's sort of like they don't have this breadth of awareness. But even if you're somebody who has a really good breadth of awareness, you, you kind of know everything that's in play, you got the big map going, and it's you know a relatively good big map, but you still want the skill of being able in a moment or four moments at a time to attend to only one thing and to be okay with your mind not being aware of everything else. And it's a little scary. You might have, some of you, depending on your personality type, you might have even noticed it with, if you haven't done this more exclusive attention to the breath as a meditation object, if you really gave it a go, if you really put your heart into it, that doesn't mean getting tight, right? It just means, oh, this is an interesting puzzle that I want to figure out. Like, how can I keep in mind this ordinary process of breathing out to the exclusion of whatever else the mind might attend to? And as I'm breathing out, exclusively curious, interested, intimate with breathing in to the exclusion of everything else. Everything else, we don't have to repress or suppress. It just falls into the background because this is the muscle we're developing. We're choosing to be interested in something ordinary. And that's that keeps that physicality of breathing in right in the forefront of attention. You notice, you know, when we talk about being aware, we often talk about it in terms of seeing the experience. Just because humans, in terms of our five physical senses, seeing is a really important sense for humans, right? But just know that when I talk about seeing, you know, the breath, we're not talking about looking at the breath. Because people, and because of this, this uh, tendency of us, of our human mind, we actually do that. Have you noticed sometimes when we're being aware of breathing in, breathing out, we're actually watching a video that our mind has created. It's concocted some mental image of breathing in, and there we are, in a sense, in our mind, watching a video screen of what we think breathing in looks like. And depending on your personality type, it could be very abstract. Like, it doesn't look like anything to do with the breath, you know? Or it might be, you know, if you've got a biology background, you might be, but it's just mental imagining. So what we're doing with the training is we're, we're using something really simple like there's movement here in the ribcage, in the abdomen, rising, falling, or expansion and contraction, or there's touching right here at the nostrils, if you're breathing in and out through the nostrils. And that's such a challenge because there's so many interesting, intense, pleasant and unpleasant things going on most moments. And if there isn't, we can just concoct it with our thinking mind. So too, it is a real kind of death to choose to be with something so ordinary as the touching of air, as the breath is going in, and the touching of air as the breath is going out. It isn't that much of an exaggeration to say it's a little bit of a death. Because all of those other tendencies or inclinations of our personality, of our conditioning to worry, to plan, to you know, whatever the mind, conditioned mind might be doing, the habit-bound mind might be doing, all of that isn't 
being fed because we've cultivated a strong interest in being with something ordinary. So the mind is, in a sense, filling up. You know, it's interesting the word mindful, right? The mind is full of the present moment, but in this case, the physicality of breathing in and breathing out is the training ground for being in the present moment because that's where breathing in happens and breathing out happens only in the present moment. Being present means we're connected with something here and now. And we know that we're connected with something here and now. That's what it means to be present, that reflective knowing. So it's not, because we can get, like if you do this training, but you're a little sloppy with it, you can like, be with the in and out breath, and then you kind of get it going, and then your mind can do other things too. But that's not this practice. You know, it's like we can learn to drive and also solve a problem at work while we're driving on the freeway. Or we can chop vegetables and be listening to the news and doing riffs on the news we're hearing, even though we're not cutting our fingers and the carrots are getting chopped or whatever but we're avoiding that tendency. And it's hard for some of us especially to just do this one thing exclusively. Now remember, this is just a skill and it's a foundational skill because the whole path we're trying to, you know, from the teachings passed down 2,500 years. So that itself is an adventure, you know, trying to, get a sense like, what was this person talking about? And of course, over the centuries, there were people who got really clear what the Buddha was pointing to, so the tradition gets renewed. But it is still a little bit like that telephone game where somebody said something and whispers it into somebody's ear, and then that person whispers, and then, you know, 10 people down the road, is it really the same thing that what the original person said? Probably not. And uh, one of the advantages we have is that there's this, for better or worse, this really conservative element in uh, Theravada Buddhism, this kind of early Buddhist uh, lineage, um, like don't mess with the teachings. So there's some, but, and then the other good fortunate thing is these days there are scholars using different scholastic methods that can get a little better at some of the changes that got even mistranslation changes that have occurred over the centuries and get a little closer to the voice of this person who lived 2,500 years ago, who had some really deep insight into the nature of our mind and of arts, what it is to experience and what it is to be free from the mind, the heart's dependencies for to realize a heart that's not dependent not burdened, even while having a body, having a life, being in a relationship, being touched by the reality of suffering, but still not burdened. I mean, that's kind of what I'm interested in. I think we're all interested in, because we see the what a wrong turn it is to see freedom as like, get me out of here. Because that's an aversive mood. 
move, you know, to think like the freedom I'm looking for is like not being here. But that doesn't really work when we're here, does it? <laughs> you know, so the freedom we should be looking for is freedom that can arise here in this messy world with the experience of our own and everybody else's suffering. What is it, what would that look like? How does that arise? That's why these teachings have been reverberating for so many centuries, because it's a pretty provocative thing the Buddha says is available. Unshakable release of all that burdens the heart here and now. And, and the way to that isn't a running away or trying to escape suffering. It's a path of understanding, of opening. And so one of the first muscles we wanted to develop is, do we have, can we train our mind, our heart, to have the capacity to be present? Let's start with something ordinary. Walking. Walking meditation was a big deal at the time of the Buddha and still today. Not like walking and looking at all the nice trees or the nice houses and thinking, oh, that's a nice car, wouldn't mind having that, and look at that bike. And... But just to choose something ordinary in the walking, like just the physicality of the foot being placed and then the foot being placed, and Nothing special about that, is there? We're just hearing sound, but not any particular sound, just the collective, the cumulative experience of hearing. So there are many ways to do this training. There's nothing essentially special about using the breath. It's just very convenient in the sitting posture to work with it because it's alive with change, which turns out to be really useful some other experiences we could use are also alive with change, but not in as obvious a way as the breath. Like, even if we use just general touch points in the body, like feeling the hands touching the thighs, that's actually alive with change too, but it can appear initially to the mind as being boring. You may say, well, the breath is boring too, but it's not as boring as your hands touching your thighs or your, your sits bones against the cushion or the chair, or your lips touching, or if they're touching, you know. So there, but you can use touch points too. Or you can use the experience of the whole body sitting. Or you can use the experience of hearing. But I'll be talking uh, about the practices, some of these particular trainings, the skill set we're trying to learn these mental, spiritual muscles we're going to develop in terms of mindfulness of breathing, because in the tradition, this is the most complete set of meditation, thorough meditation instructions the Buddha gave. And even after his deep awakening, the Buddha continued to practice mindfulness of breathing because tranquility, that pleasure of the mind secluded from the diversity of experience is a really wholesome pleasure to connect with. You know, what, what is that sound, what is that pleasure of just being, turning inward and just being with that simple experience of breathing in, breathing out? And after a little while, 
it's not even the physicality of breathing in and out that you're attending to. Some of you know this. It's the pleasure of the mind not in the push and pull of the diversity of my experience, what I'm thinking, what I'm hearing, what I'm smelling, other touches that are happening. It's the relative seclusion from all that, the pleasure of that, that actually ends up being a more stable meditation object. But initially, we have to generate that experience, that pleasure of seclusion, by choosing to be with something usually ordinary. But you know, a lot of people, you know, when they come and check in with me about the practice, they'll say things, you know, I really like listening to music. Or I can meditate when someone's doing a really nice massage, you know, or whatever. Because it's true. Because pleasure, it's easy to collect my attention around something pleasurable, right? But it's just, uh, it makes the mind dependent on that pleasurable experience. But the breath is always available. And walking is always available. And we're not dependent. And, it, and the neutrality actually ends up being really important. So, for sure, when you're fortunate and are having a pleasant experience, instead of thinking, how can I have more of this pleasurable experience, which is stressful, by the way, really get interested in the pleasure of the ice cream when you're eating it, or of the music when you're listening to it, or of the cool summer breeze like we're having here in Minnesota now, after having a pretty warm summer, we've had a few days that are really nicely pleasant in terms of the temperature, and just they're like, oh, that feels nice. Otherwise, you're going to think, well, I want to move to a northern latitude where there's more of this cool weather, right? And that's stressful on the body and the mind. But just to be intimate with pleasure when it comes our way is a really nice skill to learn. And then to start learning it in more neutral experiences, like brushing your teeth, which isn't, for most of us, a really terrible experience, but probably for most of us isn't a pleasant experience. But it, it's definitely an experience we can absorb into. Like, just do that one thing when we're brushing our teeth. Just be with the experience. Like we're learning with mindfulness of breathing. And then when you get enough continuity, enough momentum, look for the pleasure. That pleasure arises not because the breathing in and breathing out is special, or the brushing of teeth, or the walking is special. What's special is the mind not attending to the diversity of the present moment. All that stuff is still there, but it's in the periphery. We're not repressing it. We don't need to be afraid of the other sounds in the room or the other thoughts that are there in the background or whatever else the mind, the heart might be sensitive to. Sensitivity turns out not to be a problem. The problem is the habit of the mind thinking it has to have an opinion or a reaction to everything it thinks or knows that it's sensitive to. It's so nice. Like, some of you are parents, and you probably, Shannon is here today instead of online, and uh, 
you know, the kids are in the basement or in the other room and you hear some provocative sounds in, from that room and you, in the mind, the parental mind can make the choice. That seems safe enough. I don't know for sure, but it seems safe enough to just let that stay in the background and not let that come fully into the foreground where the mind really like listens, has a response, makes a decision to do or not to do, to intervene or not intervene. But a lot of the times, it's just okay for all that to be in the background. We're doing this all the time. Stuff is staying in the background. Like, when's the last time, for those who are online, you know, you really checked out that person two boxes to the left, three boxes down, right? But your visual experience is still picking up that person, presumably, if you have the gallery view. Or, you know, notice Mark's shirt, if you were looking at the shirt. No, but that blueness of the shirt is there, but the mind is liberated from having to have an opinion about it, liking it or disliking it. Because that's what torments. Anything I really bring my attention to then there's going to be a feeling tone, a liking and a not liking. All of that just comes online. And then all of my previous experience of looking at a blue short sleeve shirt comes to the fore in my mind. I can't help that. Like all the trauma I have around short sleeve blue shirts <laughs> or whatever, you know, it just comes forward. Because that's how our mind works. It's like everything, like in neuroscience, you know, these neurons, everything's connected to everything. I mean, this is just a basic principle in reality, I think, and it's just showing up now in kind of Western materialistic science as well. Everything's connected to everything. Like even in deeper physics, they can't figure out like why the way we observe something changes the, uh, the experience of what's being observed. This whole idea of location starts to get disturbed in the more subtle physics that they're doing these days. Because it's this underlying principle that, like in the East, they don't have a problem with this because the Eastern view is that it's a mind-oriented world, not a materialistic world. Like materialism, the sort of what we would call physical reality, arises out of the mind in the way that it does in a dream. But in the West, we have this, from the East, Eastern perspective, this diluted view that the mind is this weird thing that arose out of this materiality, right? We have, we are little one-celled creatures in the oceans and then it got more complicated and then we got this sort of neural structure. Now we realize it's all through the body. It's not just here in the brain, right? We've got all the the neural networks down in the gut as well as the brain and along the cord, the spinal cord and who knows where else and then the mind comes out of that. Of course, neuroscientists scientists can't find that mind, consciousness, but they just assume it's there. When, when they get a more sensitive instrument, they're finding. Maybe, but we'll, we'll find out, maybe, who knows. But, but that's not the Eastern view that all of this is coming out of the mind. So, what we're doing with our meditative practice is we're undoing bad habits 
And one of those bad habits that really comes out of this creature consciousness is like we feel obliged to be vigilant to our sense experiences and to interpret them all in terms of liking and not liking. As uh, one of my teachers said, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? Or am I sexually attracted to it? And that kind of dominates how we move through the world. And you, so we see what a profound shift it is when we decide for a 30 minute or 45 minute morning training, or if you sit in the evening, evening training, okay, I'm gonna sit down, settle into my posture, and then I'm gonna be a, attentive to something normally I'd be oblivious to, right? Because the breath happens on its own. And I'm gonna choose to connect with the beginning of the in-breath, to be sensitive to that physical sensation of breathing in until it finishes, that little gap, the beginning of the out-breath, sustaining interest, sustaining awareness to the end of the out-breath. Notice that little gap before the next in-breath. And in that way, one half-breath at a time, learn to have that unwavering, uninterrupted, curious, receptive and relaxed presence with this ordinary natural process of breathing in and out. So fully, so committed that awareness is not aware of anything else because it's so far into the background. And then and only then will we realize, the mind will realize a vacation. We don't really know how oppressive it is this constant um, sense impingement of sound, of sight, of lawnmowers. Here in Minnesota, we're hearing the credit union, which is right next door, is has, having their lawn mowed. And, uh, you know, constant impingement. And it's oppressive. It's like, have you noticed sometimes when you, there's a conversation and you want to do so, you're reading a book, that somebody at another table is having a conversation. It's like so hard for us not to be listening. We don't really have the option unless we've trained our mind to say, honey, don't pay attention to that. You like your book, you know, but we kind of just can't help it. Or somebody walks by, we check them out. It's like we can't help it. We're a sexual being. Should I be attracted to that person or not? Even when we get old, <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, that's interesting. There's that tendency, that impulse to look. And even like on the periphery, I see that habit energy, you know, and judging and all kinds of things around class and race and gender. It's like mapping the mind. It's like how we feel safe on that kind of more basic level as we're mapping out who's around us, friend or foe. We just do it. And we want, part of our practice is like really opening to those habit energies. But you know what makes us really good at that more open awareness of the whole totality of our experience? Doing this more exclusive practice. Because it really strengthens the mind. The pleasure that we get from seclusion, it's like uh, nectar healing nectar for the mind.
because that simplicity and that non-fragmentation and the pleasure of that is very healing for the mind. The Buddha is highly encouraging, strongly encouraging about learning how to absorb into simple, ordinary phenomena to begin to detect the pleasure of that and then to use the pleasure of that absorption, that concentration, that simplicity to go even deeper. And it's a little death, but it's a very blissful little death. So when people talk about the bliss of meditation, some of the time they're talking about this experience of our, our, our mind, any mind, having let go of its ordinary, uh, usual obsession of having to be alert and attentive to what's happening around me, to let that go. That's why meditators go to a quiet space. Not this space right now, but... <laughs> right? they, we go to a quiet space, they go to a cave, they go to a, a secluded spot where they feel safe enough to close their eyes. That's one way, it's like, we're proving to ourselves we're safe because I can shut my eyes. Right? I don't have to attend to this or that. And, uh, and just follow that, it's like an ancient path. Humans have been doing this, whether it was through dance, or chanting, or looking at a fire, or when you think about human culture and all the ways humans have learned to put down the ordinary world of experience and turn inward, because it's so um, healing to put it all down. In the same way, how long are we going to last if we don't touch into deep sleep? I forget exactly what it is, but there's not too many, uh, you know, I'm thinking it's somewhere between 10 and maybe 30 nights before you really either start to lose your mind or die if you're not having deep sleep. And what happens in deep sleep? Because when we're dreaming, we're kind of doing the same thing we're doing in waking life. It's just that the body isn't doing it. But the mind, scientists would tell you, neuroscientists, that the brain activity during dream is quite similar. It's just somewhere in the brainstem, it's telling all of the sort of normal functioning. It's not completely, like you watch your cat or dog dreaming, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we see that sometimes. It's just a cat imagining it's, you know, catching a prey. Um, so there, it, the brainstem shut off doesn't always work so well, and we get our little twitches or whatever. But basically, the mental activity is very similar. But in deep sleep, all of that stops for a while. And we don't know what that's like, but we know what it's like coming out of deep sleep. We feel a heart feels satisfied, like, I don't know what that was, but it felt good, right? That's why uh, I put this in the resources a couple months ago, this short article by Ajahn Buddhadasa. It's called Nibbana for Everyone. It's on the internet, you can just download it for free. It's just like 10 pages. 
He's a famous Thai Buddhist monk, meditation teacher. He, I think he died in the 90s and quite influential for some of the teachers that have come teaching in the West now. And, uh, but in this little booklet, Nibbana for Everyone, Nibbana or Nirvana is that word for the putting down of greed, hatred, and delusion. These are, for most of us, most of the time, the animating forces in our life. So when we put them down, we're cool. Nibbana is a kind of coolness. It's a kind of death of what's agitated, a cessation of what's agitated and hot. Now remember, the teachings arose in a tropical climate where coolness was something really pleasurable. Now here in Minnesota, we have a mixed feeling about coolness. We're having pretty warm summers now, so we're, we're learning to like coolness a lot more, but not so much in the winter. But the idea of coolness is like, oh, that soothing coolness, like, ah, ah. But we need to understand the torment of our mind that is being impinged by one sense experience after another. Innumerable. We're not, we can't even be conscious of all the sense impingements. The diversity of just sound alone is so rich. Even one sound, like the sound of the lawnmower, let alone all the other sounds that we're sensitive to. And then there's the amazing diversity of physical sensations, subtle, energetic sensations, grosser, more obvious sensations, pleasurable, neutral, unpleasant. And then think about the complexity of thought and emotion and feeling tone and perception, all the mental activity that the heart is sensitive to, and smell and taste, and any of the other senses I forgot to mention, right? It's amazingly diverse and complex and subtle and gross and pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And the mechanism of, a, of the mind's sensitivity is to sense it. And they're finding, like, in terms of memory, that we, the system member, uh, remembers everything, even though I can't consciously access, like, what was it like to come through the womb? Or what was that sound I was hearing when I was having that intense conversation with my wife? No, I don't remember the sound, but that doesn't mean it wasn't sensed by the sensitive apparatus that we call me and mine or I, right? It was sensed. And it's laid down in some way here and now. We are, in a sense, the one who has experienced everything. That's why it can feel quite a burden to be ourselves. Because the digestion process of having all that sense impingement, the digestion hasn't always been so good. So we like, I can't really handle this thing I'm being sensitive to, so I'm just going to bury it energetically somewhere in the energetic system. And then we post a sign on the door, don't look here, don't feel this. But it, it's stressful to have all these places sort of sealed off. They're not actually sealed off. The, the, 
the denial or the disconnection is just an energetic burden. So when we learn to bring something in mind and we learn how to be unwavering, that it's safe, and it's not only safe, it's blissful to be unwavering, unwaveringly present, really committed to the present moment. Of course, we're using something safe and neutral, like just being with the in-breath, being with the out-breath. But we're learning something like, I can be present. It's kindergarten for meditators. That doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> this is hard kindergarten for meditators, just to be with an object. And like I mentioned in the guided sit, you know, a lot of you have trained with more of an open awareness practice, which is, and we'll get there with these set of instructions. Um, there's 16 instructions in this first part of using the breath more exclusively. It's really just the first few out of the 16 instructions the Buddha gave on mindfulness of breathing. So we'll be spending some time going through this, using the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing as a way of understanding the path. But in little ways, when you're chopping your carrots, when you're walking from here to there, when you're doing something ordinary, just practice doing one thing only. Like being all in with whatever it is you're knowing and doing. And letting everything else fall into the background. And then during your sitting time, make this the major part of your sitting for the next couple weeks where you're just going to work with the meditation object you choose. So remember, you can translate what I've been saying to any meditation object, including some of you who might be using chanting or visualizations or hearing or whole body awareness or touch points, right? So the, the number of ways to do it. But stick with one thing your mind likes well enough. Because you'll get to the point where your mind doesn't like it and you'll want to change. And that just means you're just up against your edge. Like, there will be, like I mentioned, for a lot of us, a little fear or a lot of fear like, this is too much, this is too weird, this is scary. Why would it be scary to bring all of our presence to something ordinary? Well, it's scary because we're not familiar with the experience of letting go of a sense of obligation to be connected and responding to everything else. You'll notice when you fall into deep sleep, there's no consciousness around at the time. Because we probably wouldn't fall into deep sleep if it were. It's like, oh, that's scary to put it all down. So we're kind of oblivious doing whatever we're doing in some dreamlike state, and all the conditions are just right, and the implosion happens. And we're all for the better for it. But now we're learning to do it consciously. So this, what we call in Buddhism, absorption, really using a neutral meditation object, or some meditation object at least, to the point where the seclusion is really pleasant, and then using, integrating the pleasure of that simplicity to strengthen the meditation object and just taking it to the nth degree, wherever it leads. Following the thread of pleasure, inner pleasure, because it's the pleasure of putting everything down, of turning inward. 
and really exploring that pleasure. So let's do that for the next few weeks. I'll keep talking about it. And it will be really important for all of us to explore it in little and big ways, formal sitting during our daily lives. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.